I was younger, I subscribed to a popular notion that I was part of something that was going somewhere. You know, nobody really wants to think that they're simply standing still. So like a lot of people my age in the late 60s, I joined what was called the peace movement without ever questioning whether something like peace could even have a movement. You know, there's a ton of talk about peace back then. It was the 60s version of the modern obsession with tolerance. Peace had its own circular logo, its own clothing options, its own music, its own hand signal, and its own celebrities. And one of those celebrities was a guy named Arlo Guthrie. He was the son of a folk music icon, Woody Guthrie. And Arlo had some thoughts about peace and how to secure it that sounded really deep, unless you lived in the real world. In 1969, when I was a sophomore in college, he said this. He said, all political systems are on the way out. We're finally going to get to the point where there's no more bigotry or greed or war. Peace is on the way. And you don't seek peace, you use it. In 20 years, all that stuff will be over. People are simply going to learn that they can get more from being groovy than by being greedy. You know, I was 19 when he made that prophecy, so I didn't really realize that being groovy so that you could get more was just greed wearing tie-dye and denim. I hadn't quite got that message yet. And I also hadn't yet learned the truer truth that just because someone performed at Woodstock didn't mean everything he said was true, okay? But probably the bigger thing at work here is that it's more common for folks to get everything about peace wrong than it is to get it right. And that, it turns out, has got a lot to do with where you're looking to see what peace looks like in the first place. Welcome to The Road to Shalom, a tiny podcast with the enormous goal of helping us find the little traveled path of making sense of why what we see around us often seems so far away from the way we wish it were. I'm Fran Shaka, an old guy with a young heart, and I'm the host of the show. Last episode, I launched us on a quest to deepen our understanding of some key words that undergird the one story of the one God, words that I called story words. I also suggested that we seem to have settled for an understanding of these words that's only personal and parochial, or maybe put another way, thinking of what they have to do with me and us as believers, a sort of two-dimensional understanding that naturally leads us to build separate little systematic theology boxes for these words. And then, over time, we add them to our collection, assuming we know what they mean, at least what they mean for us. But if you remember, in that episode, I cautioned that using two-dimensional word meanings in the one story of the one God, which, if anything, has multiple dimensions, well, our faith ends up pretty flat at the end of the day. And not only for us and but also for to the watching world that's paying much closer attention to us than we know. And I think this anemic approach to the Bible is also at the heart of the geometric rise of the group sociologists call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who profess that they have no religious affiliation at all. And it happens to be one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States. So, I propose that we take these story words out of their two-dimensional boxes and look at them more closely. And when we did that last time, we discovered that they have at least two more dimensions, one that's global and the other that is missional, or maybe looking at it in another way, a dimension that deals with the unbelieving world, the world out there, and another dimension that deals with God himself. 
And what's more, these dimensions have always been there and are essential components of the one story of the one God. And when we do this, our thinking arises from its two-dimensional dust and the Bible becomes multi-dimensional just like life itself. And our faith is slowly transformed into what we've always intuitively hoped it would be in the first place. All right, I'm rehearsing these ideas not just because they're important, but also because I happen to know they're a little counterintuitive, which means they'll slowly fall off the back of the desk if we don't keep putting them in front of us. All right. The first story word we took out of its box last time was the word sin. And our two-dimensional understanding of sin, one that was familiar to all people of faith, had to do with guilt. My guilt, your guilt, and everyone else has 22 pairs of functioning chromosomes. But it turned out that this restricted view of sin then reduced our understanding of redemption to simply a forensic solution, one that focused on the death of Jesus as payment for the guilt my sin produced. In the world of systematic theology, this is known as substitutionary atonement. It's wonderful news, don't get me wrong, but it neglects the first half of Jesus' own description of his mission, which it turns out was his entire life, minus about 15 hours. Jesus said this, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But then last time we turned it over, we turned the word sin over, and we discovered the enormous effects sin had on everything God had originally created and said was very good that had nothing to do with guilt. And we assigned the word corruption to sin's other dimensions, one of which was the enormous global pandemic of decay it unleashed on everything in every way. And the other was a missional dimension of sin, namely that God is concerned about dealing with both sides of sin, our guilt, others' guilt, and all the places and all the ways sin's corruption had ruined his creation at the beginning of the story. All of a sudden, sin was no longer just personal and parochial. It was bigger than me, it was bigger than you, and so was God's solution. It was comprehensive, not just forensic. All right. In the next two episodes, we're going to dive headlong into two more story words. The first of which is what launched this podcast two years ago. And those two words are peace and grace. You know, and in an odd way, beloved, grace and peace are sort of like fraternal twins. They're often found hanging out together in the Bible. And even though they might not look exactly alike on the surface, when you really get to know them, you're going to definitely be able to tell they're related. And most of us already have, I guess, a two-dimensional understanding of both of these words. We're pretty familiar with their personal and parochial benefits. They're precious words to us. And these are two of Paul's favorite words too. In fact, he opens each of his 13 letters with the same phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So for Paul, grace and peace are woven into a tapestry with our problem with sin's guilt. So I suspect that when most of us see the word peace in the Bible, especially the New Testament, our minds sprint quickly to the personal benefits we each have with God through Jesus. We love verses like, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm guessing you're also familiar with the promise Jesus gives us regarding our own struggles with fear and anxiety. 
Jesus said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, in fact, I think all of us have been taught at some point in our lives that the best way to calm our hearts is simply to pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul says that through faith, you and I have peace with God. The enmity between us and God is gone, thanks to what Jesus has done. The war between us and him is over. All right. In fact, Paul pushes this idea even further in and says not only do we have peace with God through Jesus, he says in another letter that Jesus is our peace. I mean, do you rejoice in this? You should. I should. We all should. It's absolutely amazing, just like grace. But don't forget, beloved, that Paul was about as Jewish as you can get. In fact, in a very real sense, Paul never became a Christian in any of the ways we understand that phrase, okay? Paul wasn't converted like I was 50 years ago. Paul, beloved, didn't go from being a Jew to being a Christian. In fact, Paul never uses the word Christian, ever, to describe himself or anyone else in any of his letters or sermons. Now, I know some of you probably just drove off the road. Sorry. That's a topic for another podcast someday. But, beloved, it's true. Paul never separated the gospel from the story of God that was predicted in the prophets and the Psalms. Anyway, so when Paul writes the word peace 43 times in his letters, he uses the Greek word for peace, irene, but his mind was marinating in something much more ancient, something with a couple thousand years of meaning behind it. When Paul was writing irene, he was thinking shalom one of the most beautiful words in all of Hebrew, a word that refers to everything flourishing as it was originally created to do, everything following its original designs. Or in the words of theologian Cornelius Plandinga, shalom is things being the way they're supposed to be. A word that points back to Genesis 1 and 2 where everything was said to be very good. So, when we said last episode that the flip side of sin was corruption, that corruption was the loss of shalom. I mean, between us and God, for starters, we've already talked about that. But beloved, also within us as individuals, I mean, listen to St. Paul here. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I don't do what I want to, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, there's a loss of shalom between us also and those closest to us. Not just us and ourselves, but there's a loss of shalom between us and those closest to us. We see this in the story of Joseph and his 10 brothers in Genesis. It says they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The word shalom is in that verse, beloved, but there was no shalom in that home. That's what it's saying. 
And some of you know the pain of the loss of shalom in a family, in a church, a business. It's a drain on all that's good. And the Bible also tells us that because of sin, shalom has been lost between us and nature. Nature. Even the shalom between us and the dirt and between us and the animals has been vandalized. We hear that in the first book of the story. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And then years and years later, the prophet Amos, when he's talking about something that's coming, he makes a description about the relationship between people and animals. He says this, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into a house and he leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, all right? Fleeing from lions, fleeing from bears, getting bit by snakes. That's not the way things are supposed to be, but it gets even more serious. God's plans for shalomic restoration reach way outside the two-dimensional boundaries of all our relationships, our relationship with him and our relationship with those in our limited private worlds. I want you to listen, beloved, closely to this shalomic language that literally gushes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. For he himself is our peace. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus is our shalom who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I mean, did you hear that? Paul first identifies a racial barrier that exists between people, and then goes on to say that one of the express purposes of God in sending Jesus was the repairing of the loss of shalom between people groups. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul said that this new family that God has created is exclusively inclusive. Not everyone is in it, but everyone is equally welcome and then equal once in. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So should we as Christians be passionate about racial healing? Well, yeah, we should, but it's not because it's sexy or it's politically correct or it's a social problem to be solved. We should be passionate about racial healing because racial division is one of the corruptions created by sin. Beloved, part of the tremendous divide among Christians over issues of race right now is rooted in our anemic and two-dimensional theology, our weak understanding, perhaps even ignorance, of the other dimensions to sin on one hand and the other dimensions to peace on the other. Beloved, sin is bigger than my personal guilt and your personal justification. And peace is broader than our peace with God. That means what? That means that our own peace with God as believers becomes the doorway 
through which we each enter into God's shalomic restoration project for his broken world. It's the beginning of our journey to shalom, not the destination. And according to Peter, it's supposed to become a passion. Peter told Christians to turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, beloved, the word pursue here is the Greek word dioko. It's an aggressive word. In fact, it's translated 35 times in our Bible as persecute. It's that kind of intensity. And Peter says we're supposed to pursue shalom. We're supposed to chase after shalom. And this idea is nothing new to Peter. Even in the Old Testament, Yahweh told his people that their own shalom was inseparably woven into that of the unbelievers around them. Let me show you what I mean. I mean, have you ever heard or read this verse from Jeremiah? He's, he's writing to his fellow Jews who are captives in Babylon. Here's what Jeremiah told them. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I mean, did you know that the three times the word welfare shows up in this word, verse are the Hebrew word shalom? We're to seek and work for shalom where we find ourselves because we're now part of God's solution. And the pursuit of shalom in the lives of others yields the growth of shalom within ourselves. I'm going to say that again. The pursuit of shalom in the lives of others yields the growth of shalom within ourselves. As people who have peace with God, Scripture says we're to become peace seekers. But it gets even better. Jesus said, blessed are the peace makers, for they shall be called God's children. That means that those who've experienced peace with God are agents of the peace of God. Peacemaking, it turns out, is Yahweh's family business, so to speak. I mean, beloved, taken together, all this means something very powerful. It means that God wants to mature you and me from being shalom takers to shalom seekers to shalom makers. Your peace with God, my peace with God, is our initiation into the multiple types of shalom God wants to bring back to his broken world. That means this clear, linear connection between our own salvation and the restoration of shalom is obvious in the story. Or put another way, the four-dimensional view of shalom becomes apparent once we know what we're looking for. Let me show you from a familiar passage that all of us know, at least two-dimensionally. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I'm pretty sure you're more than familiar with this passage. It's a classic reference used to demonstrate that God has done what we were powerless to do. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. That's what he did. The very next verse contains the other two dimensions of our guilt being forgiven. Paul goes on to tell us why he saved us. Listen to what Paul says again, only this time in its four-dimensional context. For by grace you've been saved through faith. and This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I, beloved, are created in Christ Jesus to work for shalom because we're now part of the solution to the absence of shalom. And this was God's plan all along, to create a family composed of multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational people who have been given peace with him in order to cooperate with him in enlarging the family on one hand and restoring shalom to the rest of creation on the other. Titus couldn't have said it any clearer when he wrote about the family of God. He told them that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Greek word for people here, laos, is a word for a multitude. God's intention for those who've been given shalom with him is to become seekers and makers of that same shalom wherever it's missing. And beloved, it's missing everywhere in every way. So the flip side of peace, it turns out, is the road to shalom God's put you on now that you've taken peace with him he offered freely to you. Makes being a Christian a whole different matter, doesn't it? Okay, so how in the world does God accomplish this shalomic restoration project of his? Well, that has a lot to do with peace's twin, grace. And we're going to look at grace next episode, both sides of it. Until then, seek peace and pursue it. And when you see places where its absence and your life intersect, well, how about you work to make some? See you next time.